We'll be in uh, Genesis 17 today as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. We're continuing our series through the book of Genesis. Uh, I want to just say thank you to Joe Seal who preached last week and in, in, uh, here for us, Genesis 16. So just picking up where he left off in Genesis 17, we're looking at the title of today's message. And I'll just be honest, one of the most difficult things about preaching to me is figuring out a title for the message. <laughs> And so today is, I think, uh, appropriately I've decided, the grace of God. We see the grace of God throughout today's passage, um, and it's truly amazing what God is doing here with Abram and what he does with us in the new covenant, which the old covenant with Abram uh, looks forward to. And so today we have four main sections. Uh, first, uh, we will see ambassadors for God Almighty, ambassadors for God Almighty, Second, we'll look at the sign of circumcision. Third, we'll look at the circumcision of the heart. And then lastly, we'll ask this question, who are God's people? Who are God's people? So we'll start with Genesis 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty, Live in my presence and be blameless. This is a quite shocking statement, especially in the context of Genesis 16. Because in Genesis 16, Abram and Sarai are not the most blameless people. Uh, they are trying to get God's promise in their own strength, using their own wisdom. Uh, Abram actually sleeps with someone who's not his wife, and then uh, his wife gets upset about that. Yes, it's a complicated story. Go back and read Genesis 16 or listen to Joe's sermon last week. Um, and she's upset about this, uh, that she's having a child and she's, uh, Sarah, Sarah's not. And she goes to Abram and like, what should I do? And, and Abram, is, he says, uh, do whatever you want with her. Wow. <laughs> good, good leadership, Abram, right? So Abram and Sarah are not very good ambassadors for God at this point. They're not living blameless. Uh, and God says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. And so we see here the grace of God because Abram doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve a renewal of the covenant, as we'll see in verse 2. He's going to continue the covenant that he's promised. He says, I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. But before he renews the covenant, he wants to remind Abram who he is. What kind of God is Abram dealing with? He's dealing with God Almighty. The Hebrew there would be El Shaddai, the first time this title would be used, El Shaddai, God Almighty. He is powerful. All things are possible through him. What he says will come true. No other force can stop God Almighty. And we need to remember this, as Abram needed to remember this, because we start to doubt whether God will be true to his promises. We start to doubt, is God able to do this for me? Uh, there's a song, you may have heard it, it goes like this. It talks about God's power and ability. He says, he is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. He is able, more than able, to handle anything that comes my way. He is able, more than able, to do much more than I could ever dream. He is able, more than able, to make me what he wants me to be. 
That is God Almighty. That is El Shaddai. While God is able and almighty, he also works on his own time schedule and not ours. He is far wiser than we are and far, far wiser than Abram is. Because Abram has been waiting 24 years since God made that first promise. 24 years for the promised child. Last week, we saw Abram and Sarah's faith waver in God's ability. So they took things into their own hands, trying to fulfill the promise in their own wisdom, on their own terms, instead of waiting on God. And despite their faith, despite their disobedience even, to God's design of what marriage should be and God's promise of how he would bring about the promise, God still shows up to affirm the covenant with them. He is gracious and he is patient, even when we are not. And even when we don't wait on God, he waits for us. He is patient with us. But as always, we should not take God's grace and we should not take God's patience lightly. For God is also holy. He is without sin. He is without darkness. He does everything that is right. And he has designed us to live in a certain way. And he wants us to live and walk in his holy presence by being blameless. As he tells Abram in Genesis 1, verse 1, he says again, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. And literally the Hebrew could be translated uh, like the King James Version does, walk before me, walk before me. What does it mean to walk before God? Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this phrase was used to describe how kings and priests of Israel were to be representatives to the world for God. The kings and priests of Israel were to be representatives to the world for God. They would walk before him, and they would see the kings and priests, and they were to see something about God. They were to see them and say, this is what it means to live in a right relationship with God. And so God is calling Abram, again, we've seen this theme, calling Abram to be like a king, to be the first king and the first priest, to be an ambassador to the world for God, to walk before him. And when people would see Abram, they would say, this is what it looks like to live for God. This is what it looks like to follow God's law and to have a right relationship with him. But as we've already seen, Abram was not doing a very good job of this. And we are the same way. How can we who are not holy, we who are not blameless, walk before God as his ambassadors? It seems like an impossible task. You guys know the verse. All things are possible with God. We who are sinners, we can be made ambassadors the same way Abram can have a child at 100 years old. A miracle can happen. By the grace and power of God, God Almighty, who is able, more than able, right, to make me what he wants me to be. That is what God can do. That is what his grace and power can do. He can make us who are sinners ambassadors for God. Uh, I remember uh, on one of our uh, evangelism trainings about how to share the gospel, some of the fears people have presented is, I'm not worthy to share the gospel. Who am I to do this? God has made you worthy. God has made you able to share the gospel because he, you have a testimony. He has saved you, and you can share that to others. So we are commanded to follow God and follow his commands and be ambassadors 
But we're not to obey by sheer determination, by the grit of our teeth, or just, uh, you know, so that we can boast, but we are to obey by the power and grace of God. And that's rooted in our faith in him. And as we see in the Old Testament, others in the Bible are called blameless, uh, like Noah and Job. We know that they were not sinless. They were blameless in their faith. They always came back to faith in God. And for, because Jesus, he's the only perfectly, truly blameless one. He's the only spotless lamb. Colossians 1.22 would say it this way. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. The way you can be blameless before God is not by earning it. It's by trusting in Jesus' death for you. Only Jesus' blood can cleanse you and make you blameless. In verse 23, it says that explicitly, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. It's all about faith. It's about faith in Jesus as your Savior. That's how you can be an ambassador for God. That's how you can be reconciled with him. It's by Jesus' work on the cross. And we strive for holiness. This is what we talked about in Sunday school today. We strive for holiness not to earn God's salvation, but because we have been saved, therefore he, we work out. We, uh, we go and obey. We live uh, out the good works. This is what Philippians 2, 13 explains it. He says, For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless, in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. We're supposed to be ambassadors, remember? We're supposed to be stars. We're supposed to be lights in a dark world. They look at us and say, something's different about you. You have a right relationship with God, and you're following his law. That will shine brightly in a dark world. And how do we do that? How do we obey these commands? How do we walk before the Lord? Philippians 2.16, by holding firm to the word of life. Holding firm to the word of life. Having faith in Jesus as what the word of life has taught us. You can only have life through faith in him. God, the Almighty, did not save you to leave you in your sin, but he saved you to live a life blameless before him, to be an ambassador to the world. And that is by his grace. It's not that we deserved it. Again, God is gracious. And for just as God called Abram to walk before him and be blameless by his grace and power, so are we. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. It's over and over again, we're saved by grace, but we're saved unto good works. We are, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Live out your faith. Live out your salvation. Now as we turn to the second section here, the sign of circumcision. So we see that God is the one who initiates the covenant with Abram. God is uh, making the relationship with him. He is making promises to Abram. We've also already seen 
how these promises that God is making in the Old Covenant, uh, they prepare, they point the way, they foreshadow the promises of the New Covenant. So remember promises of land, promises of many descendants, all point forward to greater promises of eternal life, of making all the nations coming into the faith. It's all the Gentiles, right? It's all the descendants, the making the salvation possible to the whole world. It's pointing to that new covenant. Um, so I'm not going to elaborate on all the promises again this, in this sermon, but we're going to focus on specifically the sign. But this is... This is the introduction to the covenant that he is making with Abram. In Genesis 17, 2, he says, I will set up my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. This is a, a right action when God is speaking, and he is holy that we fall face down before him in worship. And God spoke with him. He says, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. So being brought into the covenant with God, this relationship with God, Abram is changed. God literally changes his name from Abhaman, which would be in Hebrew, the father of multitude, the father of multitude. And God would also change Sarai's name to Sarah later on in verse 15. We read on in verse 6, what is this covenant here? It says, I will make you extremely fruitful and make nations and kings come from you. Key word there is kings. We'll come back to that in a little bit. This, this key theme of, be, of kingship is, will be prevalent. Uh, verse 7, I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your, in your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all of the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. God also said to Abraham, as for you and your offspring after you throughout the generations are to keep my covenant. So again, the promises here is of uh, multiplying their offspring of the land, as, as we've already seen, points forward to the greater promises of the whole world coming to salvation in Christ, um, and then the land, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, new earth, not just a one portion of land of the promised land, but looking forward to the greater promise of heaven and being with, with God. But here's something new in verse 10. This is what we'll spend some of our time explaining here. In verse 10, it says this. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from a foreigner and not your offspring, whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. So, what is all this about? What does this mean? Why have this here? Like with the covenant sign with Abram before, if you remember, God made a covenant sign of he cut, it, cut the animals in two, and God passed between the animals. To modern ears, that sounds very strange. But to Abram, that made perfect sense. That, that's how they cut covenants. That's how they made agreements, right? We would sign a legal document to make sure that, that our promises would be kept. But back then, they would do different signs, physical symbols. 
And so I think the same thing is going on here with Abram. Abram would understand what this sign would mean uh, because circumcision too was an ancient custom uh, practiced in other countries. And we'll see that uh, mentioned in Jeremiah, but there's also other historical records as, as well. But places like Egypt, Judah, Edom, the Ammonites, and Moab, but they practice circumcision differently. Uh, for in those countries, especially Egypt, uh, there's a lot written on this, that circumcision was only for the king priest of the nation. So it was to mark out the king priest of the nation. And as with God here, it's not just for one person. It's not just for the kings. It's not just for the priests, but it's for all the males. So the, one of the purposes here in this symbol is to communicate that everyone in Israel, all the males, would be kings and priests. Uh, God would make this explicit later in Exodus 19.6. He says, you will be my kingdom of priests in my holy nation. Right? Abram would be the first king priest, and all his descendants afterward were to be also king priests. They were to be ambassadors presenting God to the nations. Right? And so this sign of circumcision would picture that. And it was likely, uh, this sign was only for the males, likely because the males were the leaders of the household. And their status would be reflected on everyone else in their, in their home. And you can also see that this God's covenant is not only directed to the rich, right? But it is directed to all types of people. It would be included even servants and slaves in the community. While having different economic status, they would all be equal under God's covenant. God would be their God, and they would be his representatives. And also, this sign of circumcision, this, that would picture them as a kingdom of priests, kings and priests, it would be uniquely personal for the individual, his parents, and his wife. As one commentator summarizes very well, the, the three, how it would symbolize to each group. First, to his parents, it would confirm that they had been faithful in transmitting the seed to their son with whom God had blessed their union, right? So it, it was God who blessed their union and God who provided their offspring and that they were trying to follow God's will in training him. They are seeking to train him up in the way that he should go. They're following this command in honor of the Lord. That's for his parents. Second, to his wife. It would give assurance that he indeed was a descendant of Abraham to whom she, she could joyfully submit to in, in, mar in the marriage relation, in faith that God would bless their home and their children. And then to the man himself, it would be a daily testimony that he and his family were consecrated to God. They were separated. They were, he was for the service of God, and that they shared in Abram's calling to be ambassadors, that he had a ministry to the world. So that is kind of the symbolic understanding of circumcision, that they would be kings and priests. They would be marked out for God in, his, in service to him. They're following God in obedience, right? And with this symbolic understanding of the sign of circumcision, it may not be too much to suggest a symbolic reason also for waiting the eight days after birth. Look back in verse 12. It says, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Now, some argue that this would just be practical reasons uh, for, you know, safety stuff. But I do think there's some symbolism here. Being on the eighth day likely symbolizes new life, new creation, 
the first day of the new week. As God created the world in seven days, the eighth day is that new day, that new creation. And for the child, it would be the first day in the covenant with God. And we'll look more at this new creation. Because that's what the sign of circumcision points to. God is bringing about a new creation. And he's specifically bringing about new creation in Christ, in the new covenant. As we turn to our next section, circumcision of the heart. So the external sign of circumcision pointed to a spiritual reality, the circumcision of the heart. Now, circumcision uh, it means just cutting away, cutting away flesh to remove, right? So Jeremiah 9, 25, we'll look at some Old Testament passages here. You don't have to uh, flip through them all. We'll, we'll, kinda, we'll go through the Old Testament and land in the New Testament in Colossians. But I'm just going to read a couple. Um, so this is kind of like a theme throughout the Old Testament uh, that the New Testament writers are picking up on. So Jeremiah 9, 25 says this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will punish all the circumcised yet uncircumcised. So let me just pause there. So that he's going to punish the circumcised yet uncircumcised. So what's going to happen is he'll list in verse 26, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the Ammonites, Moab, and all the inhabitants of the desert. So all them were circumcised physically, but not spiritually. They didn't have a circumcision in their heart. He'll make this clear. He'll, he'll, he'll turn and say, okay, it's not just for the Egyptians and Ammonites, but look, he says, all these nations are uncircumcised, and the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. You see that? So they may be circumcised physically, but they're not circumcised in their heart spiritually. And we'll get to what that means in a second. And Jeremiah 4.4 uh, brings this point clear. He wants us... He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts. Even from the Old Testament, it's always been more about the physical sign. It's always been pointing to the spiritual, something about your heart. Uh, Deuteronomy, going back further, Deuteronomy 10, 16. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. And if you read in the context of 16, it's talking about these people that are disobedient to God, disobedient to God. They're not following his ways. They are not, their hearts have not been cut. The, the sin has not been removed from their heart. And we jump to the New Testament now. Uh, Romans 2.28 says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So that's the physical sign of circumcision. But, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Verse 29, On the contrary, a person who is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. So the, the Spirit of God is removing something from our heart, right? The Spirit of God is removing something from our heart. What is that? He's removing our sin. He's removing our sinful flesh, the, the old self, our old, the, the layer of our heart. Um, I walked, Eloise likes to listen to audiobooks, and uh, she was listening to Narnia, and Eloise, what was the name of the book that you were listening to where the dragon was shedding all of his skin? I didn't write it down. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's in one of the seven Narnia books, so you can read all of them and figure it out. <laughs> but anyways, there's this dragon in the book of Narnia where uh, he's told to shed part of his skin, his layer of skin. He sheds one layer, and he's like, that's not good enough. He sheds another layer, that's not good enough. 
He sheds another lamb. That's not good enough. And Aslan, who is symbolic for God in the Narnia stories, comes and he's like, I got to do it. You can't do it. I got to rip the old skin off of you down to your core. And it's a symbolism of circumcision of the heart. He's removing all our baggage, all the sin. He's removing our, our sinful flesh. Right? He's giving us a new heart. And this Colossians will be in Colossians 2, 11 for a little bit here to explain this symbolism of circumcision of the heart. It says, You were also circumcised in him with a, with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So we're starting to see the imagery of being circumcised, the circumcision of Christ is dying to your old self, dying to your sin, and being raised to life in Christ. That's what circumcision and the picture of baptism are going hand in hand together here. In verse 13, And when you were dead in trespasses, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, flesh. So if your your heart is not yet cut, and if it's uncircumcised, that means you are dead in your trespasses. You still have your old self. You still have your sin on you. You need the Spirit of God to remove it. And that's how he does. He says, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. So if he removed your sin, that means you're forgiven. Your sins are no more. They're not on you. you're You're not held... Uh, you're not guilty anymore. You are innocent. You are clean. You're a new creation. In other words, through faith in Christ, the Spirit renews your heart. He cleanses your heart of sin. He cleanses your trespasses, your disobediences. You're once dead, but in Christ, you're made alive. So this is what happens in the new covenant. The external, the external sign of the old covenant, circumcision, was pointing to the spiritual reality of circumcision of the heart. And pointing to the new covenant. And the new covenant sign is baptism. The baptism, again, baptism does not save us. It is a sign of our faith. It is a sign that we have been saved. We're declaring this is what happened. And so practically, just to bring it to a practical level, if circumcision, physical circumcision, is part of the old covenant, and it's foreshadowing the circumcision of the heart and the new covenant sign of baptism, then it's it's logical, and Paul would talk about this elsewhere, you don't have to be physically circumcised in the new covenant. That's not a a law that you have to follow. It's a law of the old covenant that we're not in. Uh, It would be similar to sacrificial laws. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore because Christ is the fulfillment. He is the sacrificial lamb, right? These are fulfilled in Christ. Now, you can if you want to. It is a conscience issue. It's not an issue of salvation or it's not a sin issue. It's an issue of conscience. The main point is that we want to be circumcised of heart through faith in Christ. That is what matters. And if you have faith in Christ, it follows that you need to follow him in obedience by being baptized. Again, baptism doesn't save you, but it is a sign that you have faith in him, that you want to follow him in obedience that he has made you a new creation. Your old self is dead. Your sin is dead. You are alive with him. And since that is the symbol of baptism, that you have faith, that you've confessed your sins, that you are a new creation, that is why we baptize professing believers. 
people who repent and confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now, we have uh, brothers and sisters in other denominations, such as Presbyterians and Anglicans. I do think they are fellow Christians. They believe in Jesus. They believe that he is the Son of God. They believe that he is the only way of salvation. But they baptize infants. Um, because part of their theology is rooted in a, I would say, a misunderstanding of how things in the Old Covenant are fulfilled in Christ, in the New Covenant. Uh, because they see circumcision in the Old Covenant and baptism in the New Covenant as a one-to-one correspondent. They think they're basically the same. So, meaning, since babies were circumcised in the Old Covenant, that means babies should be baptized in the New Covenant. But, they're not a one-to-one correspondence. There's going to be some difference. Again, the physical circumcision was pointing to the spiritual reality of a heart change. And so because we have that pointer, that foreshadowing, that means we baptize those who have faith in Christ, right? Um, again, when things come from the old covenant and find their fulfillment in the new, they, they are changed, right? So the sacrificial system is changed, Uh, Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is like a sacrificial lamb in many ways, but he's not exactly like the lamb, right? Um, Think of about the temple in the Old Testament. We are called the the church. The believers are called the temple of God. The spirit of God dwells in us. But that doesn't mean that we're made of wood and bricks, right? We're different from the temple in the Old Covenant. And so in the same way, uh, baptism is different than the sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant. So that was kind of an aside, but I thought an important point to make. Since people, uh, you might hear that argument from Presbyterian Anglicans, they would say circumcision is for infants in the Old Testament, and that's why we baptize babies in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. But they are different. The importance here is, is, is faith. Um, baptism doesn't save you. Circumcision doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that can save you. The problem is many people think that they are saved because of maybe their parents' faith or because they attended church their whole life or they were, uh, they were born into a religious home. Even for Baptists, we have to remind people, baptism doesn't save you. It is a sign of your faith in Jesus. Amen. So let us remember that. As we look into the last section here, kind of drill down the, the key distinction of faith by asking the question, who are God's people? Who are God's people? There is a clear distinction between God's people and not God's people. Those people that are in a right relationship with him and those who are not. In the old covenant, if they get circumcised, it is a sign that they want to be a priest of God. They want to walk before God and be blameless. They want to be ambassadors for God. But if they don't, if they don't, get the sign of circumcision, it communicates that that man doesn't want God to be his God. He doesn't trust God to take care of him and provide him with offspring. He doesn't want to walk before God. He doesn't want to be God's ambassador. He doesn't want to be blameless. He basically excludes himself from the covenant relationship with God that God is offering. We see this in Genesis 17 verse 14. It says, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So by not cutting the sign of the covenant with God, that person will be cut off and separated from God's people. 
Perhaps this is another reason why God chose this sign, to show the seriousness of the covenant, to communicate the consequences of not being part of the covenant, being cut off from God's people, and thus being out of the presence of God as well. For remember, this is how God began the whole dialogue in verse 1. He wants us to live in his presence and be blameless. God wants them to live in his presence, to walk according to his ways, to receive blessings of being in right relationship with him. So if you do not get the sign, it shows that you do not want to be a part of that in the Old Covenant. We also see a, distinguish, a distinguishing between God's people and not God's people when they talk about Isaac and Ishmael. We see this starting in verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarah, I do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Again, theology of kings coming from Israel. They are a nation of king priests. Abram fell face down, and then he laughed and said to himself, can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Again, Abram is not perfect. <laughs> He's laughing at the promises of God. God already told him he is able. He is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. What can God not do? Why, why would he laugh? Genesis uh, 8, verse 18. So Abram said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. So again, Abram's trying to use his own wisdom. He said, I already have a son. Why can't you use him? He's, he, why can't he be the promised son? But it's not by our strength. It's not by our wisdom. It's by God and his power and his, his plan. Verse 19, God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him as a permanent covenant for his future offspring. So we, we see here a distinguish, a, a, a clear choice. Abram's presenting Ishmael. Why not Ishmael? God says, no, it's going to be through Isaac. Right? There, there's going to be a choice here. Verse 20 continues. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He will father 12 tribal leaders, and I will make him into a great nation. But... I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. So it's, he's choosing Isaac and not Ishmael. It's not anything that Isaac isn't even born yet. It's not anything they did to deserve it. It's by God's grace who the covenant promise will be through. I mean, even in verse 24, we see Ishmael will be circumcised. He will be part of the covenant in some ways. It says, Abram was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. So we see here more is going on than just the physical sign of circumcision, right? Because Ishmael was not, has the sign, but he's not part of the promise. It's going to be through Isaac and his descendants. The New Testament picks up on this distinction between Isaac and Ishmael and physical circumcision and the, and the spiritual circumcision, the, uh, the promise of God, with his grace and his promise. We see this in Romans 9, 6. It says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Okay? So he's saying 
It's not just about physical descent. More is going on here than meets the eye. Verse 7, neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. So it's, he's talking in paradox, right? Like it's his children. How are they not his descendants, right? Because there's a special promise descendant. There's a special, there's something more going on. He says, on the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. It is through Isaac's family, through his lineage. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. So the children of the promise. Now we can, you can trace that through, through Isaac and Israel and all that. But for us today, how do we become part of God's people? Is it even possible, possible for us to be children of the promise? How can we be inheritors of the promises of God? It is possible. God makes all things possible here. And he explains this, I think, most clearly in Galatians 3. And this will be the last passage here before we end our time. Galatians 3, verse 26. It all centers on faith. It says, For through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. That is the summary of the gospel right there. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So if you have faith in Jesus, you're, you repent of your sins, you are dead to your old self, and you are made new in Christ. Christ has clothed you with his righteousness, with him. He is, you've been clothed with Christ. If you have faith in him, you are his son. In verse 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no second-class citizens. We're all part of the family of God. No matter where you're from, who you are, your status, your economic status, social status, male or female, we are all one in Christ. In verse 29, if you have faith in Christ, you belong to Christ. If you belong to him, then you are Abraham's seed. That's how you become children of the promise, heirs according to the promise. It's not about what we do. It's not about physical circumcision. It's not about uh, even a physical sign of baptism. That is what we do after we have faith in him. It is a sign of our faith. It's faith in Jesus. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, it's almost as if God knew that we needed to be reminded of this. Over and over again, we are quick to forget and say, well, maybe I can do something to add to my salvation. Right? We want to earn. I think that's very American of us as well. We want to earn it. Right? We want to work for it. But you can't. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's a gift through faith. He's always coming back to the simple yet profound truth that God wants our faith in him. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness and it's how it foreshadows the things of the new covenant where we can understand better what Jesus is doing as we understand your word in Genesis. God, if there's anyone here today that has been trying to earn their salvation, that has been trying to um, just persevere on their own, God, I ask that you humble them today. 
that they would realize that they can't earn it, they can't reach perfection, they, that they would realize that they're not holy, and that there's a big problem that they can't solve on their own, that they have to let go and trust in God, trust in you. God, for those here today that do trust in you for their salvation, I ask that they continue each day to trust in you, to be ambassadors for your name, that we would be representatives, that we would live a life blameless before you, that people would see our lives and there would be lights, there would be stars in the darkness. God, only by your power can you change sinful people like me into a representative for you. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.